0: Welcome to Kansas City Real Talk, brought to you by KCIRR. I'm Alex
1: Gehring. And I'm Bobby Howe.
0: Bobby, where are you joining us from?
1: Well, they'll never know, hopefully. Well, yeah, I well, know, I but you're, in know. That,
0: you're laying on a towel.
1: I am. There's palm trees and it's sunny, and I'm half clothed as opposed to you guys who are both wearing uh, sweaters and very warm things because it's cold in Kansas City. Well, and we're in not an office.
0: We're, we're both in and- offices. Being half clothed isn't, isn't a good idea.
1: Well, I mean, I, I put on a top for you guys. You, you're welcome. Thanks so much. But I'm in Las <laughs> Vegas, which now makes that entire thing. I had on a swimsuit top and I put a cover over it. Like I wasn't like half dressed like that in Vegas. Good Lord.
0: Oh, okay. Got it. Got it.
1: We, we are like 20 minutes off the strip. We are nowhere even near all the glitz and the glamour and all of that stuff, which is why there's grass and trees. Pretty things. Yeah. Me. How hot so, is it? It's like 80. Oh, so, that's not
0: bad at all. Oh my gosh. No.
1: It was, it's like every day is like low is in mid sixties, every day, uh, high in the mid eighties. It's very just rinse and repeat every day. So,
0: well, it's, it's frigid here right now. Um, it's like a, a, uh, fr- what, what is the temperature? It's like 60 degrees or something. It's fine. It's not that. Okay, well,
1: that's not actually frigid, but like, yeah, the overlay, <laughs> oh, no, <I'm> <laughs> I was getting like the, the weather channel apps of like freeze warning through like, oh 7 yeah. PM, and I was like, oh yeah. No, so, thank you.
0: That's real. Yeah. We disconnected yeah. our hoses. And then I freaked out because the gas wasn't turned on at the rental. <laughs> <So>. Oh, God. <laughs> that's the life. Well, that's the life. So what are you working on? What are you in? Is it, So You're. what are you teaching with Maura?
1: So I'm not with Mara right now. Um, oh, that was just, just a guess. That was a, that, was a, that was a very good guess. She's actually flying up to Omaha. I think she's speaking in Omaha this week. Uh, We were in New Jersey last week. We were teaching some uh, NAR leadership classes, uh, but I am currently in uh, Las Vegas for a job announcement that will be uh, public by the time this uh, podcast airs.
0: Ooh.
1: Yes. Here's the funny thing that I'll let you guys into is uh, there's a conference that's happening out here, and I'm going to be announced at the conference, but there's an evening thing. The conference starts in the morning, but there's a reception and a dinner this evening. I'm going to know some of the people at the reception this evening. Some of our Kansas city friends are a part of this group that is out here. I can't tell them the reason why I'm here because it's going to be very obvious, Bobby, why are you're not one of us? What are you doing here? And I'm just going to say, I'm a speaker. Make sure you show up tomorrow, which is true because I will get on stage and speak at some point tomorrow, but it's really not the reason that I'm here. So <laughs> To my friends, if you're listening wow. to this, I'm sorry for the deception that I'm about to pull on you in a few hours this evening. So you're so
0: covert. You're, I am. Yeah. Wow. You're like well, a spy. Were, people are going to think it. you're a KW
1: spy. I know. That's what we were joking about at lunch today. Was people are going to think I'm a spy uh, working the room this evening? Maybe <laughs> I am. Maybe I'm not. But we'll see. So
0: I love it. Well congratulations on advance in advance you. of yep, your announcement you. um and uh that's exciting i'm sure we'll talk more about that at some point well I'm hey sure we i wanted to tell you that Uh-oh. uh I, we were at the kansas conference uh, yep. a couple of weeks ago it, it was a great conference and one of the speakers that we had was dr stan Langhoffer, and uh we have him come out to do our uh, round table discussion Uh, Our economic roundtable discussion on a regular basis, and then he builds out a report uh, every year uh, reflecting uh, the findings of that roundtable, and this is probably my sixth year participating in that roundtable discussion, uh, and it is always uh, very interesting, um, and uh, I I get a lot out of it, Uh, but the report is always great too, and what's really exciting is we get to have him as our guest. On the podcast today, um, and so pretty awesome. He's with the Wichita State University uh, Center for Real Estate, um, and he's uh, an economist. So, uh, kind of a different perspective from Lawrence Yoon because he's more local, um, and mm-hmm. uh, and it's all built on insights from local roundtables. So, very cool stuff. I'm excited to have him.
1: I'm I'm excited to have Stan on as well because this is what we all want to know. What's what's I you know. I'm looking at maybe buying a house now or're in the next six months, and those these are the questions that keep my husband keeps asking me, you know what's everything gonna look like next week? what's everything gonna look like next yep. month? What's everything gonna look like six months from now? And I'm like, I don't think there's gonna be anything dramatically different, but as far as the little key pieces to this i it could go it could, it could go one of a million different ways. Yeah. No.
0: Here's here's what we all know, though, and is that it, anytime, and this is what I keep on thinking about and what I've told a couple of my agents, is that when you think about COVID and what we went through with, with COVID-19, you know, March of 2020, we had no idea what things were going to look like. We just didn't know. And then two months later, we were in the midst of the most hectic real estate market that most of us have probably ever experienced or ever will experience. That's the reality. So we went from immense uncertainty to people, despite there still being remaining uncertainty, people making the biggest investment of their lives. And it it took cutting through that uncertainty, giving some kind of solidarity, and it worked. Um, Now, so that was probably the most like, traumatic experience that a collective group of people would uh, ha- have, has ever gone through right that we all experience that as a human collective. I don't know of many things like that uh, in in history um, and we still came out of it really strong. And you know what else? It, interest rates were low during that time and you look at it and the buyer satisfaction was not very great. Interest rates are not the only reason to buy a house. They just aren't.
1: It they're not. It's not the only driver. There's so many reasons why people have to buy houses and interest rates. I I was on the plane when I was on my way to um, New Jersey last week. There was a row of three gentlemen behind me, and they're not in real estate, but they were talking about the housing market. And one person was giving an example of, you know, this time six months ago, a five hundred thousand dollar house with a three percent interest rate. This would be your monthly payment. Now, this is your monthly payment now at, you know, a half million dollars at 7% and just the dramatic increase between the two, which we all know the math to that. But then what they said is housing prices are going to have to crash in order to sustain this. And I just started giggling to myself because no, is if we go back and we go back to data that we've had, whenever we had Lawrence Yun on before if we go back to the last six major recessions that our economy has had, housing prices have always grown during a recession, except for 2008, which that housing crash caused the recession, not the other way around. So no, dear friends, I know you're really sad. Interest rates are going up, but that does not mean that housing prices have to crash when historically they have told us it's exactly the opposite. So- Um, I, you know, I just found that whole thing to be interesting, just listening like a little fly on the wall, but I was like, I wasn't invested enough into it to correct the gentleman because I probably have been a would have been mansplained Alex I'm sure I would have. (laughs) But so. the, and
0: that's the uncertainty that we're all, that we all have to figure yeah. out a way to cut through. That is our job. That is mm-hmm. our singular job right now is to help the public understand. I mean, we're their trusted advisors. You can't rely on the media to, to really explain what's going on. Well, I'm sure we'll talk more about all of this with, uh, with Stan, uh, and yep. I'm really excited about that. Um, do you have a, do you have a book bit today?
1: I brought a book bit with me all the way to Las Vegas. Oh yes, my
0: gosh. Wow. Is it about gambling?
1: You know what? It probably should have been. Now that I think about it, I probably should have picked one about gambling. I did not pick one about gambling. My oh, we got to, We got an intro. We got to do a.
0: Oh, Bobby's, do, do, book, do, do, bit. Do, Bobby's book bit.
1: Casey, rare. Um, so my book bit for today is "Thank You for Being Late," which is by Thomas L. Friedman. This is a book I initially heard about, like seven years ago. And I wanted to read it then. And then I lost it was on a Facebook post, somebody was talking about it. And I could never go back and find that Facebook post. And I couldn't remember the exact name of the book. And then recently, I ran across the book. And I was like, that's the book I've been looking for it all this time. So thank you for being late just talks about helping us slow down and take life at a more reasonable pace by just explaining the state of our rapidly changing environment, economy and technology. So I felt like this all tied back really well into what we were doing today. Um, and my quote from the book is today, our social media experiences are designed in a way that favors broadcasting over engagements, post over discussions, shallow conversations over deep conversations, oh, shallow comments over deep conversations. And that just, that really resonated with me in the book because it really does just feel like everything is just these little blips and we don't really want to go too deep when. When we go deep, someone's arguing with you and I'm not going to deal with that. And we just we all want likes, but we don't want to actually engage with other people. So my three lessons from the book is number one is technology is accelerating exponentially and changing the world before our eyes. And in the book, he gives an example about um, the digitization of dairy farms. And that speaks home to me because I come from a family of dairy farmers. My actually my uncle still goes out and goes to all the farms and uh, gets all the milk out of them. And I just talking to him over the years, the way that things have changed is just our technologies are just morphing so fast um, that in five to seven years, what we know has now become obsolete to a certain extent. And then lesson number two in the book is market globalization has given us a vast world with instant connections. Um, And it just talks about our globalized market. Isn't just manufacturing and trading goods anymore. It's performing transactions. It's sharing information on the internet. I mean, I have a really good friend uh, who lives in Dubai. I've never met her, but I feel like I know her so well. And it's all a part of our global marketplace that we're all, she's a realtor there. So I know all about the Dubai market and it's really cool. Um, My third lesson from the book is we face dangers of client change, but we can use our rapidly changing world to solve problems in ways we never could before. And it just talks to something in this section of the book about technology and globalization give everyone access to the internet, which allows us to work together to handle changes and make decisions about the future and that we should use these things for our good. And so the book's just about slowing down and understanding how fast our world's changing. So that's my book bit. Thank you for being late by Thomas Friedman. I love it. Yay. Now I think it's time to go. Yeah. you you were not one minute late today and we were not gonna call you out for that. Nope, wasn't nope, that didn't that didn't happen at all. Oh.
0: I'm never late. All right. Never. Let's go get Stan. Welcome back to Kansas City Real Talk, brought to you by KCRR. Bobby and I are here with Stan
2: Longhofer. Stan, how are you today? I'm doing great. It's a beautiful day here.
0: It is well. It ended up okay. It was a little cold here this morning, but not as cold as it's going to be tomorrow morning.
2: I love football weather, and it's even after the game yesterday. I still love football weather, and so uh, it is quintessential
0: we football it. weather, isn't it? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah.
0: yeah very do you good still old-
1: love football though after yesterday's game?
2: Yes, I do. I, <laughs> yes, I do. I, uh, you know, it's it's always sad when the Chiefs do not come out on top, but you know. Mm-hmm. I grew up in the nineteen seventies. I uh, when I became a Chiefs fan, Todd Blackledge was the was the draft pick that we made instead of John Elway, and go through mm-hmm. the entire list.
1: Yeah.
2: And um, and so I, I, I am a a long suffering Chiefs fan, and uh, it's it's I'm still adapting to this sense that there's a minute left. Oh sure, we're going to yeah. win. You could, yeah. <laughs> Uh, that I'm used to growing. I grew up in a time when it was okay. So we're ahead by 21 points, and there's three minutes left. Could we still lose it?
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: Well, I've got a question that kind of relates to football because I, I, I I've noticed uh, here with with a loss uh, that it it impacts the way. And this was true last year too. Anytime we lose, mm-hmm. I feel like it impacts the pe- the way that people come to work. It oh, impacts yeah. the way that people behave for that entire week whether they were at the game in person or whether they watched it on tv so i'm curious if you've ever or or if you know of any studies on the economic impact uh not in in terms of like you know super bowl activity and all this kind of stuff but just the economic impact of the way people feel
2: after a, a sporting loss or a sporting win well, you know, I, I, I'm not aware of that, although I wouldn't surprise me, we actually had a colleague here, Marty Perlene, who, who one of his specialties was sports economics and, and did research in those areas. So I'll, I'll have to ask Marty, but it's not necessarily obvious how that economic activity would go because, you know, you're sad, you're frustrated. So you go out and you get a lot of comfort food. Right. So maybe people go out and go on a spending splurge uh, when there's a, 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 a game loss like that. Um, so I, I, I'm taking it with the I'd much rather lose this week than lose in January when we play them.
0: There we go. That's right. That's right. Well, that's how we all had to had to think last year. That's for sure.
1: Stan, let's talk a little bit about, you know, some of your predictions for the Kansas City market in 2023. And how does that compare to the state of Kansas as a whole?
2: Well, in some ways, Kansas City is looks an awful lot like the state of Kansas as a whole. And part of that is because Kansas City, even if you just take the Kansas side of the Kansas City metro area, it makes up a big, big chunk of the state. And so but that being said, most of the large markets across the state look very, very similar. And I think the real key thing to keep in mind um, right now with with what we're seeing and the uncertainty that we have about rising mortgage rates and will we have a recession and all of these things is that the market that we were in for the last two years was so absolutely unreal that it can't be used as a base of comparison as we move forward. Um, Prior to the pandemic, the Kansas City market i think was sitting with roughly on average about 7500 homes that were actively available for sale at that point in time and and that was a month's supply that was about a two month supply it was a really really tight market contrast that to when the Kansas City market was last in balance which would have been in 2014 really a very balanced market and there was 1200 1300 homes available for sale. And so Kansas City was already in a very strong sellers market even prior to the pandemic. And then what happened during the pandemic, if you will recall, we we actually forecast that sales would decline after the you know in, in, for our 2021 forecast, we thought that demand was uh, going to soften because of all the shutdowns and the economic fallout that we would have from all of that well it turned out that i think five things happened that that became a perfect storm number one the people who are most likely to be home buyers were not didn't actually lose their jobs Uh, they were able to pivot work from home and so while we were fearful about a lot of layoffs the layoffs that happened, and there were a lot, they tended to happen to the side of the of the housing market that tends to rent as opposed to buy. Um, at the same time, we all received stimulus checks, whether we lost our jobs or not, everybody got multiple rounds of stimulus from the federal government, but because of the shutdowns, we couldn't go spend it. We couldn't go out and Uh, spend money at restaurants, we couldn't go traveling, we couldn't, some of the things we wanted to buy, we couldn't buy because of supply chains disruptions. And so households got their balance sheets in the best shape that they've been in decades. And then you couple that with the fact that we were all sitting around looking at our own four walls a lot more than we normally do. And I think people got some cabin fever. Um, I'm one that is less inclined to think of oh the move to home office everybody needs more space for that i think in some ways quite frankly it's just i'm sick of looking at these walls and i want something new and then you threw on the fifth element which was mortgage rates that dropped to the lowest levels that they have ever been and and those five factors came together to say it just it it really took a blowtorch. And lit all of the kindling that we'd been laying for about ten years from a lack of inventory, and created this raging bonfire that resulted in in, in, in enormously fast home price appreciation, some to the likes of which we've never ever seen in Kansas. Well, I mean, I. Th- Bobby
0: and I were having a brief conversation uh, before you came on about some of those exact factors and and Bobby actually overheard uh people talking on the plane about uh how you know the housing market was going to experience an immense crash and and that we would be experiencing depreciation uh you know serious depreciation uh in the near future um and you, if you uh, if you had to advise an agent, we have to be careful about how we talk about these kind of predictions as agents, right? We, we don't want to completely be dismissive of the, uh, and, and, and promise that values will continue to increase, right? We can't do that. that that's no. against license law in the state of Kansas, right? right? Probably the state of Missouri, too. We can't say those things. How, how would you tell agents to uh, discuss these things with their clients?
2: Well, the first thing I'd tell them to do is to go down to the KCRAR office and pick up a copy of the housing forecast and give that to their agents. And I know the folks over at the office would love it. Take a box, take two. I love they it. They really are great in order to use in listing presentations and in other information. And it, what it does is it provides you with an outside voice. So it's not you as an agent saying, here's what is going to happen in the market. Here is what the economist who looks at these things all the time, here's what his predictions are. Now, we all know economists are wrong all the time, but at least you have something that's an outside resource to give. Um, Why do I think that prediction of a a crash in home prices is wrong? Well, sometimes we see something that blows up like we saw home prices blow up and we think it must be a bubble and therefore it's going to pop, and everything's going to collapse. But just because home prices literally exploded over the last two years, and it was, it was, it was incredible home price appreciation, does not mean that that was by definition a bubble. You have to go back and look at fundamentals, what caused those home prices to appreciate like that. In a bubble world, it really tends to be driven by everybody thinking that somebody else will pay a higher price. That you know, it's the greater fool theory. Well, I think prices are too high, but they're gonna keep going up. And so therefore somebody else will buy it and I'll get out of here before it all falls apart. Again, prior to the pandemic, we were sitting with around a two month supply of homes available for sale. We normally think of a balanced market as being between a four and a six-month supply, and and Kansas City is a market where that that benchmark really has been true over a long period of time. We've been asking the question: How are realtors finding homes to sell? And we were in a strong seller's market even before all of the stimulus that came. So the reason home prices exploded during the pandemic is because of those five factors we talked about but on their own they wouldn't have caused it it is because we didn't have any inventory to begin with and so as we come out of the 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 outrageous stimulus that we had and and as demand softens and, and make no mistake demand has softened tremendously since six months ago, a year ago, that doesn't alleviate the supply issues that we have. And so from that level, it's hard to imagine a circumstance where we will flip over into a buyer's market, where buyers have so much leverage that they will be driving prices down. And even if we were in a buyer's market, even if, if, you know, if we had a very, very severe recession and everything just absolutely collapsed on the underlying economy and interest rates went up to 12% and you know, pick your worst case scenario that you'd want to have, even in the worst housing crisis that we've ever seen since the Great Depression, Kansas home prices really didn't decline. Kansas City home prices only declined modestly and that was a world where we had month supply that were upward of 10 months supply and so you know, one of the things that that we have in in Kansas in the, in the in the Midwest we have lots of land and lots of land means that our prices can't go on wild extremes the way that they do in coastal markets And so even if you wanted to point to, say, what happened nationally in, you know, 2010, you know, 2009, 2010, in in these local markets here in Kansas and in Missouri, that's not what happened with our home prices. So it's unreasonable to expect that we should see meaningful price declines in this environment, especially given our underlying shortage of supply.
1: So Stan, going back to you know us already having a shortage of supply going into COVID, which we, Alex and I at our offices have been talking about that for a couple of years at that point, but I think we were falling on deaf ears. No one really started paying attention to it until COVID hit. Do you have any reasons for the severe shortage of housing we had headed into COVID and then where it really just all came to a head?
2: Well ultimately it's a consequence i think of two things number one we just haven't been building enough homes ever since 2008 um and so we're we're working on 15 years now of of insufficient new housing stock being added and even with all the apartments that have been added you know which uh, obviously there are choices people can own a single single family home they can buy a condo they can own a single family they can rent even with all of that we simply haven't been building enough homes and there are lots of reasons for that Um, one of the challenges is that in the wake of the financial crisis existing home prices were essentially flat for about four or five years they just it bounced up and down but there was no meaningful appreciation at the same time new home construction costs kept going up And so the value proposition between a new home and an existing home got worse and worse and worse. And so buyers just kept eating into the existing home inventory, which is part of what led to those those shortages that we had. Um, Once we finally got to a place where home price appreciation began again, um, picking up again in, in say 2000, really 2014 when we started to see some positive appreciation, the market was balanced again. Um, It was starting to make a difference. We were starting to see some new home construction that was picking up a little bit, but not at a pace that would would resolve the issues. We we really need to build for three, four, five years, substantially more homes than we're building right now. And so it it, it took us a long time to get into this problem. It's gonna take us a long time ultimately to get out of it. Now, our forecast is that home price appreciation is going to slow dramatically next year, but our forecast of 5.5% for the Kansas City market, if we hadn't had the last two years, we'd said, hey, that's great, that's really good, solid home price appreciation for the Kansas City area. Um, and again, that's just reflecting the shortage of inventory. And we need several more years of that because over the COVID period, uh, home price, I'm sorry, over the COVID period, new home construction became even more expensive. And so it's still a challenge to be able to build and add inventory that's that's going to, to meet the needs of the broad sectors of the market.
1: Dan, I'm going to jump in with one more question just real quick. I'm cutting off Alex and he's mad at me and it's okay. He can deal with it. Um, You talked about a decline in home appreciation. Is that the same as a decline in home values? And for those people who do not know the difference between the two, can you talk about that a little bit?
2: Yeah. So we often talk about home price appreciation. You know, last year, Kansas City area home prices rose by 15.8%. That's an apples-to-apples measure of home price appreciation, meaning that on average, an individual home's value increased by more than 15%. If that appreciation rate slows down to 5.5%, home values are still going up. They're just not going up at this, you know, supersonic rate that they were going up before. And so just because home price appreciation is slowing, doesn't mean home prices will fall.
1: I keep hearing people say that they interchange the two. And I'm like, they're not the same concept. And I try to, I talk in circles, you say it much better, so.
2: Well, uh, it it is confusing. There's, you know, you do tend to, when you start to see the line going down, sometimes you forget that going down is just coming back into a more normal level and it doesn't mean that it's gone negative and and with home price appreciation what you dislike is seeing it go to zero or negative so
0: dr longhoffer another thing that people talk about in terms of the decline in appreciation right less appreciation Mm -hmm. is that it won't keep up with uh increased inflation uh, for this year Can can you speak to that just a little bit
2: yeah um you know, so certainly the current inflation rate, I think the most recent number was 8.2%. And so at that level, if if we stay at that level of inflation, then we would see what we call as economists real declines in home values. The nominal value, the price of the house goes up, but when compared with inflation and the purchasing power of the dollar, it goes down. Um I am one who believes very strongly that inflation is going to come down. And I and I believe that for several reasons. Um, Number one, um, the Fed is taking very aggressive steps to try and deal with inflation that's being driven on the demand side. One of the things that has unquestionably happened is that all of the stimulus the federal government put in has, has stoked inflation because it created enormous increase in demand. For all sorts of goods and services, that's one piece of what's driven up inflation. The other thing that drove up inflation were the supply issues. So we've had all the supply chain limits and the things that has driven up costs of materials. That's independent of demand. That that is simply you know you can't get what you want to buy, and therefore the, it costs more to do that in addition the commodity prices that went up largely associated with the war in the ukraine so the energy costs that went up and and the the volatility we've had there but also food costs you know grains and other things that it's a world market for all of these so all of those also um, built into um, into the inflation that we've seen well the supply chain issues and the commodity volatility that we see, those will resolve themselves over time. They, they have taken longer than we, we wished, but, but those are things that will ultimately resolve. And with the Fed being very aggressive in trying to bring down um, the demand side of inflation, we shouldn't see inflation moderate substantially over the next year. I believe that that's likely. I'm not the only one. Uh, The Mortgage Bankers Association's forecast for the 30-year fixed mortgage rate is for it to fall down to 5% by the end of next year. And if you actually take it out a year further, they project even further declines into 2024. Um, That's only consistent. That can only happen if underlying inflation uh, declines. Because right now, if if, if long-term inflation is going to be at an 8% rate, Then lending money at 7% means you're losing with every dollar you lend somebody. You're getting paid back a dollar that less than a dollar with what you're getting. There's another measure that we look at, and it's called the break even rate. And it really is a measure of in Treasury securities and the interest rate that people, um, the interest that people receive from lending money to the US government. And there are two types of these treasury securities. One of them is a traditional loan, a traditional bond. And essentially the dollars that you get paid back with that, you have to build in a premium for inflation because you know that inflation will erode your purchasing power in the future. But there's also a version of this that's called the treasury inflation protected security. And essentially it works like this. You put in, you lend money to the federal government. And at the end of the year, based on actual inflation that occurred, they increase the size of that loan. So they pay you back more money to compensate you for the. What we do as economists is we look at the difference between the interest rates of those two. One of them, you're protected from inflation. One of them, you're not. And that difference in interest rates really is a measure of what financial markets believe inflation will be in the future. It's very much like the Vegas line okay? for for sporting events. The Vegas line is simply trying to balance the money of people who bet for the Chiefs and the money of people who bet against the Chiefs. And so when you look at that Vegas line, it represents the collective wisdom of everybody who's betting large amounts of money Similarly, this break even rate, as we call it, is reflecting the collective wisdom of financial investors who are betting literally billions and billions of dollars on what will happen with interest rates in the future. Well, right now, the five year break even rate, so the average expected inflation over the next five years, is right around 2.6%. So Investors who are putting again literally billions of dollars on the line for this are betting on average that inflation is going to come down in the coming years. And so I I don't try and beat the, the beat the Vegas line. I don't try and beat Wall Street investors. I take what they give me as the best indication of what's going to happen going forward. So that was a very long-winded explanation of saying, I think interest rates ha- in, inflation has to come down and so as a result, if we end up with, say, 2.5% inflation with 5.5% uh, home price appreciation, then that's a 3% real gain in housing values, which I think is consistent with, with what we should see in this market.
0: So I've got a question that, that might become fairly convoluted. but um, Economists will
2: never do that to you.
0: <laughs> well, so we had such low interest rates for so long. And, and I'm not an economist. Mm-hmm. But one concern that Bobby's like, no, Alex is not an economist. But one concern that I guess I have is that when we were lending money at such a low rate and now the rates are as high as they are, uh, I mean, the banks were selling, you know, liabilities, right, for themselves. If they took on a, a lot of liability at those lower rates, What what is the possible impact of that? Uh, you know, long-term on the banks? Is there risk that they took on? I mean, not that they had a choice, but is there risk to the banks uh, mm-hmm. with uh, increases in rates like like these?
2: Well, certainly one of the things that happens with um, with mortgages, a mortgage is a long-term asset for a financial institution, right? And so when I lend at a fixed rate of 3%, and then market interest rates go up to 7%, they, if they wanted to go sell that, if they wanted to sell it to another investor, that other investor says, I can take my money and I can go earn 7% by doing somewhere else. So the only way that they can get a yield that investors will demand is by lowering the price of, that they sell those, those bonds, the mortgages that they have. So the market value of those bonds does go down and that can present some real, what we call interest rate risk for financial institutions financial institutions manage this in a number of ways first and foremost they get the mortgages off their books and they sell them on the secondary market fast as they can as fast as they can well they keep a lot of them on the books cap fed keeps a lot fidelity keeps them on their books i mean you know credit unions do a lot of financial institutions keep mortgages on their books but they they balance so they don't keep everything that they that they originate they get some of it off so they are managing their assets. Well, it's called asset liability management function that they have at the institution. They also hedge their interest rate risk and they can hedge it through a variety of different tools and techniques, whether it's by by trying to borrow longer term so that they match their assets and their liabilities or through larger financial institutions do it through derivative securities. at this point, uh, the balance sheets and the financial um, statements for for large financial institutions was very, very strong coming into all this, and there hasn't been any alarm bells that have gone up that this is going to create any any crisis for lenders. Um, I think one thing to keep in mind is that those those three percent mortgage rates that we had for a while those those were not normal or sustainable. Um, if you think about you know just normal people who would want to lend money to you, um, they have to receive compensation for for that in several ways. Number one, if I'm going to give up consumption today and wait and get consumption in the future, that's what I'm doing, right? I'm I'm giving up money today so that I can have the money to buy stuff in the future. I need to be compensated for that. And normally I, I think of that as being roughly equal to say the real growth rate of the economy. Let's call that two two and a half percent in a good healthy economy that's growing inflation adjusted two two and a half percent that's a reasonable expectation of what i should get in the future of increased consumption because i gave it up today then i need to recognize that mortgages are not inflation protected so we will have inflation and i need to recognize the dollars that i'll get paid back are worth less than the dollars that I lent you. So we build in an inflation, an inflation premium. The Fed's long-term target for inflation is 2%. So let's add that in. Now we're talking four, 4.5% interest rate. And then there's this ugly thing called defaults. Sometimes borrowers don't pay back their loans. And so you need to add a risk premium in there. And if that's another 50 basis points, 1%, then now all of a sudden you're talking about maybe a five, six percent mortgage rate as kind of the bottom end. I tend to think of mortgage rates in the range of four and a half to seven and a half as being the range that we should expect mortgage rates to be in in a world where we have a healthy economy that's growing at a stable clip, low inflation and nothing funky going on in financial markets and so again i don't see a world in which we're going to go back to those three percent interest rates again i just i think that's unrealistic seven percent where we are right now is perfectly sustainable long-term rate and prior to say 2006 we thought that was a pretty good interest rate Um, ever since the financial crisis however we've been in a world where the federal reserve you know we all heard this phrase quantitative easing uh, well, a part of what they did is they bought literally trillions of dollars of mortgage-backed securities. And that has artificially lowered mortgage rates from what um, we would have, you know, would have had without, without that stimulus. The Fed is now in a process of trying to unwind those positions, but it doesn't want to disrupt the mar- markets unduly. And so what it's doing is it's allowing those mortgages to roll off its balance sheet as they mature and that's going to be a slow long process um, but i thought, last i saw i think they were up to about two and a half trillion dollars worth of mortgage-backed securities that they were holding and that's up from around a trillion dollars prior to p- the pandemic so it's going to take time for all of that to unwind wow. and uh, so but again once we get all that worked out four and a half, seven and a half percent that's the range I think is is a normal range to see.
1: I find this stuff absolutely fascinating, and I feel like you take it to a level that everybody can understand it, no matter what level of education they've had up to this. Um, and I do agree with you about interest rates. I'm looking at buying a house right now, maybe in the next six months, and everybody's like, "Why would you do that? You have a three and I have a three point two five interest rate. Why would you double it? Because it's still basically free money over the. Lo- I'm looking at a long term home over the next thirty years. I'm not going to get worried about what's happening right now because it's still historically cheap money. Three and a half was artificial, in my opinion. Um, so I let, do me,
2: what, let me touch on with that because yeah. I think that's a really important point. I've had a lot of people ask me about concerns about a lock-in effect that will have people who bought homes over the last few years that have this three, three and a half percent interest rate. Will they then not sell their homes and move up because of those low interest rates and and i think the answer to that is i'm sure there will be some but at the end of the day most people buy or sell their house because of something that happened in their life it's not about the mortgage rate or the financial situation matter of fact i tell people if you're buying and selling a house because you're thinking of it as an investment you're probably going to make a bad decision buy or sell a primary residence. I'm talking about what the house you're going to live in because it is the right situation for you and your family. And then if you do it based on that, the financial investment side of it will take care of itself over time. And so when you think of it that way, people are still going to have children, They're still gonna have kids that grow up and move out of the house. They're still gonna get married. They're gonna get new jobs. They're gonna get divorced. They're gonna decide that they want to downsize. There are all sorts of reasons why people need to change their housing situation. That's gonna continue. And even if mortgage rates go up substantially, people are still going to buy and sell homes. They did it in the early 1980s, even though they had those great low mortgage rates from the early 70s.
1: My mom got into real estate in the 80s. So I grew up with those 18% interest rates. They don't scare me at all. And you know, it's funny, early on, you were talking about some of the reasons why people were buying houses during COVID was because they were sick of the same four walls. Well, I feel like I have long-term COVID in my house because now I'm finally sick of my four walls. And like, you know what? Now we've come out the other side. I'm ready to move on. But so the last question we ask all of our guests is what else? What else should we be talking about? What else should we have asked you? What else do you want to end with?
2: Well, I think you know, one of the things that I hear about is, is home buyers, prospective home buyers that are thinking, oh, well, you know, house prices are gonna collapse and therefore I'm gonna wait and then I'm gonna get this great deal. I just don't see that happening. And so again, if it's the right time for you and your personal life to be buying, never try and time a real estate market. Just go in and do the transaction. Yeah, maybe rates will come down, then refinance when rates come down. Um, But I don't think it's realistic to think that if you only wait six months or a year that somehow you're going to get a great steal on a house because the fundamentals point to a continuing seller's market.
0: Well, Dr. Longhoffer, this has been awesome. I agree with Bobby. I think you you present this in such a digestible way. And um, I'm going to take your advice early on, though, and I'm going to go pick up a box of uh, the housing forecast Kansas City 2023. Uh, and uh, make sure that everybody in my office has access to this information. And, uh, and obviously, I'll make sure that they uh, hear, hear the podcast too. So thanks so much for being with us today. Well, And, and when you
2: do that, make sure that you, you tell all your agents to make sure they give thanks to Security First Title and Fidelity Bank because they made it possible for those yeah. publications to exist.
0: Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, and you have a great rest of the day. All right, you too. Thank you.